The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. All of my dreams that I've ever had for her just disintegrated in the air. My days now are spent with scheduled weekly visits to the cemetery. Many days of unmanageable tears. I just can't seem to control them continually flowing. A broken heart and a hole in my soul. Delusions. Most of us are fortunate enough to not worry or suffer from these cognitive symptoms. We most commonly attribute delusions to more severe cases when discussing schizophrenia. And though less than 1% of the U.S. population is affected by this particular chronic brain disorder, like most other diagnoses, there are different levels or stages which indicate the severity and potential cause for concern on a case-by-case basis. Those living with schizophrenia obviously vary in their own experiences. Some have explained the voices in their head as, quote, loud whispers, characterizing them as shadows that can scream. Others say that they see monsters crawling across their walls. And some have irrational fears that someone or something is following them with the intent of causing them serious harm. It's unimaginable to think what it must be like to live like this, and sadly, there is no cure. This particular disorder requires lifelong treatment, therapy, and medication to manage any semblance of a normal existence. A common thread we see in the rare violent cases of schizophrenia is resistance, as it's human nature for any one of us to want to believe that we're okay. Rarely do we want to admit that there might be something wrong with us. In the case of someone who is severely mentally ill, it would be reasonable to assume that this individual, hypothetically, would need to rely on loved ones for help and support, to make those hard decisions of when to seek professional assistance and when to intervene. Surely we can't expect these individuals to make those informed decisions on their own. But what if you don't have that kind of support system in place? What if you do, but your family isn't proactive about your care? Let's say you did try to help this person who was clearly in need of help, but it wasn't enough. Or even worse, if you inadvertently enabled or somehow assisted this individual in carrying out a horrific tragedy without even realizing it. The question as it pertains to the public in cases such as these is how do we protect ourselves? Or better, can we protect ourselves? It should never have to come down to fighting for your life in the first place, But each and every one of us is guilty of naively thinking that these things simply won't happen to us until one day they do. Just after 3 o'clock in the morning on April 22, 2018, a group of friends pulled into the Waffle House parking lot at 3571 Murfreesboro Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. They had called in a breakfast order after a night out on the town. The young woman driving backs into the second row of parking spots, furthest from the building, and exits the vehicle to retrieve the food. And just as she does, a gold Chevy Silverado truck erratically pulls into a handicapped spot in the first row, closest to the Waffle House but out of sight from the business's front windows. A man sat in the truck, as numerous patrons walked past his driver's side door. But before the young woman could return with the food order, the man was seen suddenly exiting from the truck. As soon as his feet hit the pavement, it became abundantly clear that he was not heading into the diner to grab a bite to eat. Instead, witnesses saw a white male, over six feet tall, with light brown hair, who was completely nude from the waist down, wearing nothing but a green jacket and holding a high-powered semi-automatic rifle.
So how did we get here? And who was this man holding a gun naked at three o'clock in the morning outside of a Waffle House? And what exactly was he planning to do with that weapon? Clearly, he was up to no good. But before we jump into those details, let's start at the beginning. Travis Jeffrey Reinking was born in 1989 to parents Judith and Jeffrey in Morton, Illinois. Travis grew up in a loving home and lived somewhat of a privileged life as the Reinkings were well off financially. His father was the owner of J&J Cranes, a local heavy machinery operator in town. Travis was pretty reserved growing up. He was also friendly but shy and fairly awkward at times. The family ultimately decided that their son should be homeschooled, at least until his teenage years, when he would then eventually attend Tremont High School. He seemed to acclimate fairly well socially and showed a genuine interest in photography. Former friends and students say they can't seem to remember a time when Travis didn't have his camera on him. He had grown up learning the ropes at his father's crane business, so it only seemed natural for him to transition into this predestined career path full-time upon graduation. By all accounts, Travis Reinking had a pretty average life, up until about 2014, that is. By this time, Travis was renting an apartment from his father, directly above one of the business garages. He would work long hours and turn to drinking alcohol after a hard day's work. He eventually developed a habit of drinking rather excessively, and that is when his auditory hallucinations began to occur. Travis began hearing voices. He tried ignoring them at first, but as time went on, they only intensified. He still seemingly had a hold on his life and was, by all means, still functioning, till he happened to go to a concert one year later, a performance by country and pop singer-songwriter Taylor Swift. While in attendance, Travis believed the headline act had mouthed the words hello to him, wholeheartedly believing that she had singled him out from the crowd. His interpretation of this intimate moment shared more than likely never took place, but in Travis's eyes, it surely did, and this perceived interaction would send him into an obsessive downward spiral that would last for years. After the performance, Travis became engrossed with Taylor Swift to a dangerous degree. He somehow manifested in his mind that he was in fact dating the Billboard top-charting artist and that the two were now in a serious long-distance relationship together. He began writing letters to addresses he believed to belong to Taylor Swift, along with emails and incessant messages on Facebook and Twitter. When she never responded, however... Ryan King simply chalked her lacking communication up to struggles that every romantic partnership experienced. At times, he even believed that she was simply playing hard to get or that they had gotten into a fight. Other times, he would become angry. All of these scenarios were clear delusions to everyone except Travis. When friends and family started to notice the lengths to which his obsession was reaching, he told them that Taylor Swift had, quote, made him fall in love with her and then started being nasty. The line had eventually crossed from super fandom into stalker-like behavior. The day Travis decided to take a solo trek from Illinois to Los Angeles, driving over 1,900 miles to an address he believed belonged to his so-called girlfriend, Taylor Swift. Luckily for everyone, when Ryan King arrived, the coordinates brought him to an active construction site for a house that wasn't even finished being built yet. Travis was convinced that whatever information he had found online would bring him to Taylor Swift's mansion. It's unclear if anyone else was aware of his cross-country venture at the time. Regardless, after this particular incident, it wouldn't be long before his parents realized just how quickly things were getting out of control. On May 26, 2016, Travis Reinking told his parents he was going to commit suicide. He told his mother he needed her to join him in looking for Taylor Swift, as he believed she was in town. For point of reference here, this part of Illinois is quite rural. It's unlikely that Taylor Swift would have had any business in this part of the state. 
Regardless, Travis's mother agreed to go with him, but not until quietly notifying police before they left. Authorities eventually met the two at a nearby CVS parking lot in the village of Morton. Ryan King was erratic, speaking nonsensically and at a very rapid pace. What the officers could interpret from his ramblings were his claims that the pop star was stalking him and that she had apparently hacked into both his cell phone and Netflix account. Travis continued by stating that he and the multi-millionaire musician had arranged to meet that day at a nearby Dairy Queen, which was just across the street from where they were standing now. Ryan King explained that when he arrived, Swift began yelling at him from across the road, so he chased her down, but by the time he caught up, she had already scaled the building with her bare hands and mysteriously vanished. Given the bizarre nature in which Ryan King recalled these events, the officers asked Travis if he would voluntarily enter treatment at the nearby Methodist Medical Center. He declined and was resistant to the idea of any evaluation or medical attention. So the decision was then made to place Ryan King into protective custody, and he was subsequently transported to the Behavioral Health Unit at Methodist Medical Center. Travis was released just nine days later on June 3rd. It was during this brief stay where he would officially be diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Soon he moved back into the apartment above his father's business, where he began treatment, though it is unclear if he had actually been taking his newly prescribed medication for his severe mental illness. Yet, after reading a letter he sent to Taylor Swift, shortly after returning home, we're left to believe the answer to that question was more than likely no. Taylor, I'm really confused right now. I don't know if it was you in the pictures on Instagram or someone who looks like you. Do you really have a twin sister? Which one am I in love with, then? I want the Taylor that wrote those beautiful songs and sang to me at her concert. Maybe Taylor 1 wrote half and Taylor 2 wrote half. Maybe I saw Taylor 1 and Morton and Taylor 2 in concert. Who is the girl in the music videos, then? If there is Taylor with different identities, then who are those other people? Is Austin your brother? Maybe Calvin is boyfriend for Taylor 1 and Austin is boyfriend for Taylor 2. Taylor, I wrote you a story a few weeks ago about a dream that I had. I know you're really busy. For context, Austin is indeed the name of Taylor Swift's brother, and Calvin Harris, mega-famous Scottish EDM artist, as referred to in this letter, was Swift's actual boyfriend at the time Travis wrote to her. He sent several other letters similar to these, many of which were marked Return to Sender, most likely because the addresses that Ryan King was sending them to did not actually exist. After returning home from the psychiatric hospital, he began to withdraw almost completely from everyone that he knew. He eventually became overly suspicious and defiant towards those around him, which eventually led to Travis actually leaving the state in 2016, when he was looking for somewhere new to start over fresh. For reasons unknown, he chose Salida, Colorado, a city about 100 miles outside of Colorado Springs. He found a job similar to what he'd been doing with his father at a place called Rocky Mountain Crane, another small family-owned business. Co-workers at his new job remember Ryan King as intelligent, polite, hardworking, but a little, quote, off. He carried his obsession with Taylor Swift with him to Colorado and spoke constantly of their alleged relationship. He told the fellow employees their plans to get married and that he'd just purchased a $14,000 wedding ring. One mechanic at the job hosted Travis at his home during the holidays, as it seemed he didn't have many friends. He was described as a loner during this period, who spent his time playing video games and largely keeping to himself, outside of showing up for work. The man who hosted Travis characterized him as being good with kids. In fact, he'd allowed him to play with his own children several times. It's unclear if Travis was taking his medication at this point, but he was functioning adequately during this period. But that wouldn't last long. A few months later, he was let go from his job, and owner Ken Sustrich decided to give Travis's father, Jeffrey, a call back in Illinois. He was concerned for Travis's mental health. 
Jeffrey relayed to Mr. Sustrich that he was aware of his son's condition. Then in March of 2017, Ryan King had called the police himself, asking for help when he believed he was being stalked online and around town by Taylor Swift. This call evidently wasn't taken very seriously, and no report was ever filed. That spring, Travis ultimately made his way back home to Tremont. He moved back into the apartment above his dad's business, and at the very least, he'd now be back under the supervision of his immediate family, something he desperately needed. One would hope that returning home would help Travis in managing his symptoms, but it was quite the opposite, in fact, and his actions would only become increasingly more bizarre from here. Starbucks and I, I got a Starbucks thing and I come back to the apartment here and then that's the thing is these, ma- these people just magically show up you know and it's, a, it's an art of deception you know they're, they're doing this for some reason because it hasn't been the first time so for some reason my cousin Chris just happens to show up here while I'm outside you know the, the off chance that I'm outside just when he decides to pull up you know and I, I go down to his place the other day you know, to see him. And so it's like, well, that's weird, you know, that this guy just happens to show up here, you know, and he, he said he had been out voting with some people someplace or something like that, so I don't know how he would have known that I went there, you know, or anything like that. But anyway, that's coincidence. I'll just write that off as coincidence. This is a video Travis Reinking took of himself as he paced around his apartment. It's essentially a 13-minute rant, which he posted to social media expressing his frustrations involving stalking, hacking of his electronics, and his belief that someone had broken into his home. My parents like, had me taken to a mental institution for looking for Taylor Swift. Because a long time ago, I was like, I had read some stuff on the internet, and it made me think that she was uptown. So I was like, I'll just go look uptown and see if she's up there, you know? And I asked my mom to go with me, because I was like, I don't want to be bored just like playing this game, you know? So I'll have someone go with me, and they can help me, you know, find this person, you know? And so I asked my mom to go. Next thing I know, we're out front of CBS, and the, and the, the police are pulling up. This guy comes out from ERS, the police pull up, you know, and I'm being arrested and everything, you know, and so I tell, I tell Chris about that whole story, you know, he didn't ask a single question about the internet hacking, you know, which is, which is really strange for this person, you know, if he knew this person, he asked, that's the thing, he asked questions about everything else, because Chris is just a curious guy, you know, but then when it came to the internet stuff, he didn't say one thing, he didn't ask one question, which is suspicious. We'll spare you every trivial detail found within the entirety of this video. Ryan King jumps from subject to subject, speaking of Taylor Swift one minute, to upgrades he wants to make on his truck in the next. It's difficult to follow at times, but there is a lot of telling evidence in this one recording. I come back up to my apartment, you know, and, and this is on my dad's property. My dad owns this property, you know, but this is where I reside. You know, this is where all my stuff is. My stuff's all right here, you know, so this is my living quarters. This is where I live. This is where I reside. No one can come in here. The door is locked. There's no one, there's nothing saying anyone can come in here. And I notice in my bathroom that the toilet seat is up. The toilet seat is up on my toilet. I haven't put my toilet seat up. I know for a fact that this toilet seat was down. I know for a fact that the toilet seat was down. I, I never put my toilet seat up because I don't like it messing up my toilet. If you stand up and you piss into your toilet, water splashes and the stuff goes everywhere, you know? It makes a mess. So I always leave the seat down. I always sit down to pee or do anything. I never lift my toilet seat up. And yet this is what's, this is what's happened. And then before, you know, I have come in here and the door, the door will be cracked like that. You know, it's not all the way shut. It's not all the way open. I always leave it all the way open, or I leave it all the way shut. I never leave it cracked open. I never do that. And I know for a fact, you know, that I didn't leave it that way. So somebody has been coming in here. 
Travis Reinking never takes a real pause in between topics. He's clearly in a manic state and is visibly paranoid as he walks circles throughout his home. There's fingerprints on the sides of my laptop. There's fingerprints on the sides. I never open the lid that way. I open up, so that's suspicious, you know. I think that's suspicious that I see these fingerprints on there. Then I open the lid of my computer. You know, I, I type in my passwords and everything because it's password protected. No one can be on this. This is my password stuff. I type in my passwords and everything, and then I, I keep them in a file here. So someone would have had to go on to the file got my passwords in, got my computer, got on my computer, and then I see that there's been files that have been manipulated on my computer. Why is somebody coming in my apartment and doing this stuff? He shows evidence on video similar to what we've seen in past gang-stalking cases. He speaks of being followed and, quote, the art of deception. It gives us a first-hand look into the mind of a man that is unraveling in a very public forum at an alarming rate. If I've been drinking or something like that, I don't know, you know, it aggravates me to no end that these people are doing this stuff, you know. This is my private space. No one's allowed in here. Then I watch these videos, you know, on on YouTube about a uh, Julia Roberts person or something. Some psychopath, like, breaks into her house and she's hiding in her closet because she's afraid of, like, this person that's doing this stuff. And it's like, look at, look at these people. They're afraid, and yet they expect me not to be. Like, look, they're coming in here, they're doing this stuff in my apartment, and then I'm not supposed to be scared? Like, oh, I'm supposed to accept that this happens? This is insane. These people are insane. It's probably because, you know, she's, oh, it's Taylor Swift, you know, she wants to pretend like she's a dude, she's a transvestite or whatever. I don't care. Like, if, if that's what she wants to do, that's what I said earlier, you know. Put on a pair of pants then, or whatever you want to wear, you know, put on boy clothes, you know, get on the internet and tell everyone you're a fucking guy then. Do that, you know, I don't care, whatever you want to do, it's not my problem. Why are these people breaking into my apartment, you know, flipping the toilet seat up like there's some guy in here using it? Like, stop doing that. If you want to tell people about that, then go tell them, you know, go, go publicize it yourself. What the fuck, why are you doing this to me? That's the whole thing, is they, they keep pushing this stuff on me, like, oh, this gayness or, like, transsexual stuff, and it's like, what the fuck, you know, none of this makes sense. If you want to be a dude and you want to leave the toilet seat up, then do that in your own fucking apartment, dress like a, a man or whatever on your own fucking time, go dress like a guy wherever you fucking go or whatever, you know, and tell people that if you want to tell them that. But don't be doing this shit to me, this shit's fucking crazy. Okay, for one... Guys aren't criminals. All guys are not criminals, you feminist Nazi. And when you come in here and do this stuff, that just tells me you're a fucking criminal, that you believe guys are criminals, and that's wrong. Like, all guys aren't criminals, you know? And I don't like you because of the way you portray men. You're sick. I don't want anything to do with people like that. This is the first time we hear Ryan King mention sexuality. It's a recurring theme that he seems to struggle with moving forward and will come up again later in this story. It's hard to make out the point he's actually trying to make here, but he seems to be implying that Taylor Swift is a transvestite, claiming that she has broken into his apartment, used his bathroom, and left the toilet seat up. One can only wonder who saw this video after he had posted it, and if anyone ever considered this a cry for help, or if Travis's parents even knew the extent of what was happening in the apartment above their property. By May of 2017, things didn't seem like they could get much worse, but that assumption couldn't have been further from the truth. Travis sent this text message to his father, explaining that he would be shutting off his phone until further notice. These people are still listening and reading stuff on my phone over the internet. I don't want to be told gay things inadvertently when I'm trying to learn about something else, and they've been saying stupid stuff like I'm a transsexual and things like that. Travis explained to his father that he didn't feel safe because he was, quote, being monitored at all times. He told him he'd be using the public library in town to communicate through their computers via internet as a safety measure. A month later in June, there was an incident where Travis made a scene at J&J Cranes during work hours. He came running down the stairs of his apartment screaming while wearing a women's pink bathrobe and holding a rifle. He unintelligibly yelled at his former co-workers before throwing the gun in his car and speeding off. 
That same day, Ryan King would arrive at a public outdoor pool nearby, wearing the pink bathrobe and nothing else underneath. He engaged in a confrontation with the lifeguard on duty and then exposed himself to everyone that was swimming that day. It was reported that Ryan King at one point did brandish the weapon in the parking lot. Luckily, he had put it back in the vehicle and it was kept there for the duration of the incident. No charges were ever brought forth. However, it did prompt authorities to look deeper into Ryan King's background. There was no substantial criminal history, but they did learn that he was a registered firearm owner. In fact, he'd amassed himself a little collection of guns over the years, the purchases dating as far back as 2011. Police paid the Ryan King home a visit and urged Travis's father to keep the weapons out of his son's possession until he had received further mental health treatment. His father obliged, stating that he had already locked up all three rifles and the handgun that Travis owned. Then, on June 23, 2017, Travis turned his cell phone back on and sent the following message to his father via text. I'm moving out of state for work, so you don't have to worry about me ever again. A month later, Travis was arrested in Washington, D.C., where he'd apparently driven to the White House carrying a sign that read, Stand for Freedom. The arrest came after Travis allegedly tried to breach security, walking past a guarded gate on the premises, claiming that he was a, quote, sovereign citizen, demanding to speak with the President of the United States. Federal agents immediately took Travis Reinking into custody and charged him with unlawful entry to government property. Weeks later, the Tazewell County Police Department back in Illinois officially seized all of Reinking's firearms. The guns recovered included a Kimber 9mm handgun, a CZ USA rifle, a Remington 710 shotgun, and a Bushmaster AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle. Technically, his firearm owner identification card was also revoked because his driver's license had been transferred to Colorado and had never been switched back to Illinois once he moved back home. But let's face it, the White House incident is what prompted action by police. After some time, however, the guns were eventually returned to Jeffrey Reinking, Travis's father, under the condition that he would agree to lock them away and keep them from his son. Jeffrey agreed, and after a slap on the wrist of 32 hours of community service for Travis, the entire matter was over and done with. After the incident, Travis finally decided to follow through with the move he'd spoken with his father about weeks before his arrest at the White House. He figured he'd try again, this time in Nashville, Tennessee, an area where Taylor Swift was known to own property. Perhaps this could have been a motivating factor that piqued Travis's interest. Nevertheless, he was now ready to go, but not until sending one last text message to his father on November 12, 2017. Dad, I got a place out of town now. I'm going to need to get my firearms back from you somehow. January 10, 2018, Travis's father sends the following text to his son. Mom and I are wondering if everything is okay. We haven't heard from you and we are getting concerned. No response. Then on February 23, 2018 in Alcoa, Tennessee, police received a call that a man was harassing a woman with children at a local motel just after 1.30 in the morning. I came out here to my car and this man down here was running up and down these, up the top, and then down here screaming at everyone's door, telling them he'll make as much noise as he wants. And I looked at him, I said, I have kids, and they're getting ready for bed. And he was right there at that white truck, literally ran into our hotel and tried to hit me, acting like he was going to put his hands on me. Right. Where's he at now? He's down there with the man that owns this place. Down towards they're the walking office, towards or? the office. Travis had been living in Nashville for a couple of months by this point. He was currently put up at the motel next to a job site he'd been working at, operating cranes in Alcoa, almost three hours away from his new apartment. After speaking with the woman accompanied by her two younger children, the officer then made his way to the lobby, where he would meet Travis Reinking. Hey man, what's going on? How's it going? Good. I don't know, I just, I'm trying to get a refund. Okay, I, we just got a call that you just went in somebody else's room. No, I didn't go in anyone's room. Alright, you got your ID on you? Yeah. 
The reason I'm here is we just got a call from, I think it was room 125, that you went into the room without being invited in, basically. No, I didn't ever go in. Okay, were you banging on the door or anything like that? No, oh, I, was, I was walking by trying to figure out who was knocking on my window. Someone's knocking on my window outside of the building. They come outside on the railing, out right, right out front of the door. You know, there's no one, there's no one who's going to stand right in front of my door. Okay. And they'll be talking loud at night, they'll, they'll knock on the windows and then walk off, and I don't know who it is. Okay. And they do this just to harass somebody, and it's several nights in a row, and I got sick of it, so I went out, I'm walking up and down the porch, and I'm making noise, you know, because I don't like it. I don't like shit like that, and I want other people to understand how I feel. Ryan King explains to the officer that someone has been banging on his motel window, for the last several nights, and that he's been unable to sleep. When people are just being loud, noisy for no fucking reason, this lady then comes walking up and she's like, "What are you doing?" Blah blah blah. You know, sticking her nose in the business. Like, hey, if you just got here, I mean, apparently you had nothing to do with it. But now she wants to police people, and she's like, "What are you doing?" You know, just leave, you know, leave me alone. What exactly did she say to you when she approached? You said she was. You said she was getting out of her car and going into the room. Okay, what, what exactly did she say to you? Here's your deal, back button. I don't know. She was like, what are you doing or something? Are you planning on going to a different hotel? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got like four hours of sleep last night because people just stay up and they're like, making noise all night. And of course, that's when you start trying to go to bed. The officer decides to cut him a break and allows him to walk free under the condition that he leaves the property and gets a room elsewhere. All right, man. Um... Like I said, this, that's the report I'm going on that you went in somebody's room. You're saying one thing, she's saying something different, so it's he said, she said at this point. I would, yeah, I'd recommend just, you know, if you're going to try to get out of here, find you another place, all right? So, all right, man. Travis is visibly exhausted, frantic, and exhibiting similar behavior to that seen in his selfie-style video not long before. There were a few quiet months for Travis, or at least it seemed that way, as he'd kept mostly to himself. He never could seem to keep a job for more than a few weeks at a time, and he eventually quit his position working cranes around Tennessee in late March of 2018. Later that April is when trouble began. In broad daylight at a BMW dealership in Brentwood, Tennessee, Ryan King posed as a potential customer looking to purchase a luxury vehicle. He somehow managed to take the key fob to a brand new X6 out of an employee's hands and subsequently stole the car, driving it right off the lot. This is the actual dash cam audio from police as they began a 28-mile slow-speed chase from Brentwood to Nashville during rush hour traffic. Travis had only reached about 40 miles per hour at top speed, but somehow he managed to lose the police. He drove the $88,000 BMW directly to his residence at the Discovery at Mountain View Apartments in Nashville, where he would subsequently abandon the vehicle. Using the car's built-in GPS system, authorities were eventually able to track the vehicle's location and found it later that evening. But Ryan King was never identified. Surveillance cameras in the area had captured a lanky, slim male wearing sunglasses and black Chuck Taylor shoes at the time. However, this was all they had to go off of. He was never suspected of stealing the BMW, and the car was simply returned to the dealership with no further action. Ryan King then scheduled an Uber sometime after to retrieve his truck, which he'd parked a few blocks away from the dealership. On the way there, he was convinced that the driver was a CIA agent and was surprised when the man let him out of his vehicle and just drove away. I feared for how they would go since they were acting outside of the law already. How would they try to poison my food again? Would they try to sneak in again and kill me? I had hit my limit. I had to do something to stop it, since no one else would. I tried to punish them by repossessing their car, since they wouldn't make things right on their own, only for them to steal it again from me. 
This time, I would have to punish them by taking something that they couldn't take back, some of their own lives. What you've just listened to was an actual journal entry written by Travis Reinking, which was later obtained by the court system. Five days after stealing the BMW on April 22, 2018, a new Waffle House location had just recently opened up in Antioch, a neighborhood in Nashville. The late-night crowd was just beginning to roll in as the bars had just let out after last call. At just after 3 a.m., a gold Chevy Silverado truck came screeching into the parking lot, the driver almost hitting a woman as she walked in to purchase her pickup order. The truck then double parks in a handicap space. The driver then sits in the truck for roughly four minutes, watching as patrons enter and exit the diner. The woman who had just entered moments before to pick up her food sat down at the counter as the order wasn't ready yet. Just then, a man by the name of James Shaw Jr. and his friend Brennan McCurry walked in. Moments later, 20-year-old Joe Perez is seen on camera, crossing diagonally from the rear of the parking lot, directly past the Silverado's driver's side window, almost making it to the entrance. Travis Reinking then emerges barefoot and pantsless from the truck, wearing only a green jacket. He is holding an AR-15-style Bushmaster rifle. He then raises the gun and shoots Joe Perez in the back of the head, killing him instantly. Perez never even saw who shot him. At the same time, 29-year-old Torian Sanderlin, a cook at the restaurant, noticed the threat while outside smoking a cigarette by the doorway. Sanderlin attempts to run past Ryan King, coming within inches of him, even placing his hands on the gold truck momentarily while pushing off to run for dear life. Ryan King turns and calmly tracks him, aims, fires, and strikes Sanderlin in the back of the head with a single fatal round. Ryan King then turns back to Perez and shoots him once more, eliminating any chance of survival. The gunman then discharged multiple rounds through the glass windows and into the Waffle House, which in that moment had over 20 people inside. Glass explodes, patrons scatter, and the woman waiting for her takeout order falls to the ground, but hasn't been hit. She plays dead and lies motionless on the floor. By now, Ryan King has entered the narrow and confined restaurant. He looks to his left and begins firing, spraying bullets at a crowd of people huddled together on the floor. Two others are killed in the process, 23-year-old Aquila Da Silva and 21-year-old Diebony Groves. Ryan King then moves laterally to the right of the entrance, toward the bathrooms. James Shaw Jr. and others were hiding behind a swinging door that led to the restroom hallway. Just then, the gunman noticed that he was out of bullets, but so did James. While his rifle was pointing toward the ground, James Shaw Jr. saw his opportunity and courageously sprung into action. He jumped out from behind the door and attempted to tackle the gunman. He wouldn't go down but Shaw grabbed a hold of the weapon, pushing up on the rifle, burning his palm on the hot barrel in the process. He eventually overpowered Ryan King and managed to push the gun over both of their heads until the firearm went flying through the air and over into the kitchen side. He had successfully disarmed the man, and the two continued to wrestle, and Ryan King's jacket came off in the process. The two were then both seen on camera, now staggering outside of the Waffle House, stepping over Joe Perez's now lifeless body. Ryan King, now fully nude, finally gave up, ran to his right, and escaped on foot. When police arrived on scene, they rushed in and attempted to render aid to those injured, pressing towels on wounds and applying tourniquets before EMS arrived. One woman's leg was so badly maimed that it was nearly completely severed off. James Shaw Jr. would later describe this injury as resembling a banana peel. Witnesses immediately informed authorities of the Silverado truck, identifying it as belonging to the shooter. They ran the plates and it came back registered to Travis Reinking. They also found his jacket a block away from the scene. Inside of the pockets were two extra fully loaded magazines for the rifle. By the time police arrived at his residence, apartment 409, approximately three quarters of a mile from the massacre, Ryan King was nowhere to be found. But he had returned to his home after the murders, where he showered, put on some pants and a dark shirt, 
and then packed a backpack which contained a handgun and even more ammunition. Evidently, police had just missed him, but they knew he couldn't have gone far, and yet he was still at large. After about four minutes, Ryan King got out of his truck, armed with an AR-15 rifle, and started shooting. Uh, We are presently concerned about evidence of two guns in that apartment that have not been located. There is a chance that Ryan King at this moment is at large with two other weapons. But we think he has fled the, that immediate area on foot. At this point, we do not know where he is. Travis Ryan King's whereabouts are presently unknown. Searches are on by law enforcement throughout the area, including our federal partners. Anyone seeing Ryan King or knowing his whereabouts, please call the Nashville Police Department, your local law enforcement agency, or if outside the immediate Middle Tennessee area, your local FBI office. Authorities had already contacted Ryan King's parents and promptly questioned his father, Jeffrey, about the firearms. His father would ultimately admit to returning all four weapons to Travis before he moved to Nashville earlier that year. His father was then informed that the AR Bushmaster he'd illegally handed back to his mentally ill son was in fact the weapon he had just used to kill four people. Just hours after the shooting, while the sun was rising and helicopters flew overhead searching for Travis, Waffle House regular Chuck Cordero was interviewed by the media, recounting the horrific events he had just witnessed inside hours before. I got out of my car to go inside, and as I got out, this lunatic in a pickup pulled up. Um, He got out with an assault rifle, wearing only a jacket, nothing from the waist down, really just craziness, and uh, he shot a a customer who was about to go in the door and then he shot my friend who was trying to get away on the sidewalk and then he fired a few shots through the window and then he went inside and opened fire inside. It's unclear if Chuck had time yet to process just how close he was to being killed that morning. He is seen on surveillance video exiting his vehicle, standing almost directly next to Joe Perez as he was shot standing literally within inches himself of being gunned down. The footage is absolutely horrifying, and you can see Chuck diving behind his black sedan, laying on the concrete, hiding as Ryan King fires shots at his first two victims. Once he started shooting inside, I I dropped to the ground, and I started to crawl around my car because I didn't know if he was going to come after me. So I was able to see his feet from underneath my car, and I kind of just... Once he went inside, I tried to run across the parking lot and I fell because my legs were just, I was just scared. And I kind of just held out across the parking lot until everything kind of settled down. There's a hero, I don't know what his name is, but there's a gentleman who was in there who when this guy stopped to reload or stopped to do something with his gun, he took that opportunity and wrestled with this guy until the gun went flying and then the dude took off running. Without a doubt, that hero was James Shaw Jr., Had he not intervened, there's no telling how many more people would have been killed. But Ryan King was still out there, and he was still armed. Police set up base camp at the Burnett Chapel parking lot in Nashville, ironically, the very same church where a mass shooting had occurred just one year prior. Authorities combed the area far and wide, but it wouldn't be until 32 long hours after the massacre had occurred that someone who fit the description of the suspect was seen walking into the woods at a nearby construction site. A worker on the job called 911 to report the sighting. 911, what's the address of your emergency? I'm standing in the construction site behind the diamond apartments on Mountain Springs Road. In between the school, there's a man that just walked through my job. Dark pants, dark shirt, wearing a backpack. I just lost visual on it. Yes. Repeat the location. Is there an address or an intersection there? Well, I am on the TVA line side in the construction zone. He's right behind this elementary 500 Mountain Springs Road. From a distance, it looks like this guy. He's got mud all over him. And what's your name, ma'am? Lydia, L-Y-D-I-A. Okay. You said he's a male. Is he white, black, Hispanic, Asian? 
He's a white male. Okay. Looks to be about maybe five, ten, six foot. He's wearing dark pants, a dark shirt, and a black backpack. And what color pants? Dark, like a black. Okay, and tell me exactly what was happening. He was just walking through the field real fast. When we noticed him, he walked all the way across our job back here in the back. And he's in behind the elementary school, headed towards the TVA lines in the woods. Okay. I've got the call sent. Did you want to speak to an officer in person about that? Well, I, I'd get somebody over here. This is right where he lived. It's that, okay. that suspect y'all are looking for. Okay. I've got the information in there. Thank you. Thank you. Some of these dispatchers, they're frustrating. We'll leave it at that. But the caller was right. Sure enough, the man wandering into the woods was Travis Reinking. He was quickly apprehended soon after without any continuation of violence and brought into custody. Breaking. Murder suspect Travis Reinking is in custody arrested moments ago. We now know that 29-year-old Travis Reinking, who is accused of opening fire at around 3.20 a.m. Sunday morning at the Waffle House location in Antioch, where four people were killed before a customer intervened, has been apprehended. After callously murdering four people and seriously injuring several others and holding the city of Nashville hostage for a day and a half, Travis Reinking was finally captured. While this represented a great relief, there was nothing to celebrate. The carnage this man inflicted upon a mass of people he didn't even know is incomprehensible. Watching these individuals be gunned down on the surveillance video is otherworldly, a hell that no innocent person should ever be met with in life. How could anyone have known that in a matter of two to three minutes, so much lifelong devastation could occur? or that the victims and survivors, most of whom were strangers to one another, would become forever bound involuntarily by one man's deranged act of sheer terror. Those who didn't survive would be stripped of having any future memories, good or bad. The youngest of those victims was 20-year-old Joe Perez. He wasn't planning on even going to Waffle House that morning, but he had gotten a flat tire, pulled into the parking lot, and figured he'd get some food while he waited for AAA. His mother tried calling him soon after, but got no answer. The news was already broadcasting a mass shooting in Antioch, and Joe had the shared location setting on his iPhone switched to on, allowing his mother to ping his exact location, which was at that Waffle House. She frantically sent his brother Christian to the scene, only to find out that he was, in fact, the first to be killed. He had just moved to Nashville to work for his brother's appliance company. Joe's immediate family eventually moved back to Texas after his murder. The reminder of his passing was just too painful to remember there in Nashville. His uncle Jojo would offer these words, speaking to his nephew's character. It was just so full of life. He was like where I wanted to be caring about family. He was more family oriented. Could never take a smile away from him. Even in bad situations, he was always happy. Torian Sanderlin, age 29, better known as T., was a Waffle House cook at the time of his murder. But working at the restaurant was more than just a paycheck for Torian. Cooking was his passion. He was also a family man who used his skills in the kitchen to connect with his loved ones. Here is his aunt speaking about the great loss the family had suffered, as well as the residual effects that have trickled down to her grandson, who calls her mom. Torian loved to cook. He would always man the grill. He would take care of... The best food you could eat. <laughs> he loved cooking. And I like to say, I have a grandson. Tari lived with him. And he was only four when it happened. He, <laughs> he went to school. And when he would come home, I always talked to him, what happened at school? And he told me, Mom, someone died. I said, why would you say that? They took her away and she didn't come back. They were outside playing and the little girl got hurt. So her parents took her home. He thought she was dead, so I thought, baby, are you sure? And he said, yeah, mama, they took her. He called me mom. I said, no, I said, she just got hurt. She will be back tomorrow. I had to reassure him. And the next day, she did show back up, and I said, did she show up? He said, yeah, I thought I told you she wasn't dead. But he associates when he don't see you for a while that you're dead. Deebony Groves, age 21, was a senior at Belmont University, majoring in social work. 
She proudly graduated from high school at the top of her class, earning several college credits before even enrolling in higher education. Her former basketball coach, Kim Kendrick, had these words to say about Diebony. When she did something good and come off the court, she just had that great big smile about her. That's what I will always remember is her smile when she played. Aquila De Silva, better known as Natrix, was only 23. Aquila translates to the bright, intelligent one. He was a hip-hop artist and music video producer in the Nashville area. He, his girlfriend, and brother were all out celebrating his new music video release when Aquila was tragically gunned down. Tia Wagner, his high school sweetheart, was also shot in the leg. She spoke out a few months after her boyfriend's tragic murder. It's been rough not having the person that I've loved the most. Um, losing him has been, been one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with. There's not a moment I didn't see him smile or brought light to his days. His music, his music was everything to him. He worked night and day. He was against gun violence. He was, was strongly against his music was everything to him. We're fighting for him. The fight will never end. Even when we're long gone, the fight will never end. He will still live on. While each of the victims' families were forced to cope with inexplicable loss, they also had to relive those horrific moments at a pending trial. But first, Ryan King would need to be evaluated to see if he was mentally fit to attend the proceedings. In August of 2018, forensic psychologist ruled that he was not mentally fit to stand trial, and he would again be diagnosed with schizophrenia. However, after months of psychiatric treatment, that decision was overturned and he was ruled mentally competent to stand trial. However, it wouldn't be until almost four years later that this trial would finally begin. On January 31st, 2022, a heavily medicated Travis Reinking was escorted into the courtroom as opening arguments began. Crime scene photos showed more than enough damning evidence. There was no question who the killer was. The question was if this man would be held accountable to the highest extent of the law. Images of Ryan King's apartment were shown, including a bedroom with no bed, just a blanket and a pillow on the ground. The magazine used in the actual shooting rested upon his bathroom sink. It was covered in blood. Two more rifles and an excessive amount of ammunition were also discovered in his closet. A safe was also found which held his passport, diploma, and the key fob from the stolen BMW, along with several other letters he'd written to both Taylor Swift and Oprah Winfrey. We'll read that Oprah letter in just a moment. Police also found a receipt from the Nashville Armory for the Bushmaster rounds used in the killings in his truck. Ryan King had purchased the ammo two weeks before the shooting on April 8, 2018. Surveillance video there also showed him purchasing a handgun magazine, but he returned it the very next day. Ryan King, of course, had entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. His defense team would ultimately build their case surrounding the idea that Ryan King did not know right from wrong at the time of the murders, explaining that he was suffering from severe delusions. His attorneys reiterated that Ryan King had been hearing voices claiming that God told him to kill approximately three people. A journal entry from the accused was also read aloud in the court. I'm not sure if I went to bed that night or stayed up mulling over what I should do. I remember praying to God, asking him what I should do. Sometimes I don't get an answer, but this time I did. In Morgan Freeman's voice, God told me, take your gun and go to the Waffle House. If you go now, you will only have to shoot three of them. Take nothing but your gun and green jacket and a couple of spare magazines. Then I want you to drive your truck there, shoot them, and walk back to your apartment. This entry was written by Ryan King sometime immediately after the shooting while in psychiatric care. The letters to Taylor Swift were also presented by the defense in an effort to show the jury the downward trajectory of their client's mental state, which they claim ultimately led him to the Waffle House the morning of April 22nd. The prosecution countered by stating that though Ryan King had been suffering from a mental illness, he was still consciously aware in his planning, and therefore he must be found guilty. They focused on the idea that these actions were punitive retribution 
against a world that he felt let him down. They presented drawings in court that Reinking had sketched atop a styrofoam lunch tray, while under medical supervision after the murders. The drawings depict stick figures of a man standing by a truck shooting a gun, with one body lying down outside of the Waffle House and another about to fall, along with three characters inside the restaurant. A voice bubble is scribbled above a female stick figure that reads, quote, Run for your lives. A bubble above another reads, quote, Oh shit, that nigger is dead. Ryan King decidedly wrote the racial expletive out with a hard ER, and the state argued that the drawings were proof positive that Ryan King knew what he was doing and that he was now, in fact, celebrating it. The Oprah letter we mentioned earlier also held some pretty interesting information. In all, it was five pages long and had been returned to sender when Ryan King was living in Salida, Colorado on February 2nd, 2017. The letter is rather lengthy, so we've shortened the contents to give you the most prudent details now. Oprah, I'm writing to you because I'm in love with Taylor Swift, and I don't know if I am delusional or not. I started writing Taylor June 2nd, 2015. The letters were about dreams that I was having. I saw Taylor for the first time September 29th, 2015. It was at a concert, and she mouthed the words, Hello to me, while she was singing a song. After that, I started to notice that what I was saying to her was getting repeated back to me on the internet. Also, things that I was doing on my phone and computer. I wrote her and gave her permission to do those things because she was being nice to me, and I didn't want her to feel guilty. She catfished me on the internet. Taylor would link me videos that were correlated to my life. I would use algebraic substitution to assume identities between different characters. Normally, I would see a character as me if they had the same life situations as me. After that, I watched a movie on Netflix that's called That's Not Us. I told my family that I was bisexual after that. I never made the connection that the thoughts I had about men meant that I wasn't straight. I just thought it was a sin. It hasn't all been bad, but now she's saying things like I'm gay and I have to hook up with a guy to see her. But only girls are allowed in her squad and that I'm a transvestite. She says things like she's hooking up with other guys. She's hooking up with girls that she wants to be in a relationship with more than one person. I tried to meet her one night and I told my parents about it. They called ERS on me and had me forced by the police to get mentally evaluated. I was kept against my will for six or seven days. The doctor, without a root cause analysis, told me that I was schizophrenic because I was having paranoid delusions of grandeur. When I asked him how he knew Taylor wasn't hacking me, he just said, trust me. She's not hacking you. I had driven 1,000 miles to see her. I was mad and posted a video on Twitter of me yelling outside her house. Now I don't know what to believe. I've reached out to the police, the FBI, and even President Obama. I want the internet hacking to stop if it is in fact happening. I want to know for sure if I am delusional or not. Maybe this is someone else on the internet, like the government. Maybe I was just wrong and saw different patterns. I'm pretty certain that it's Taylor because that's what they told me and only Taylor should have gotten my written letters. You're her friend and I'm sure you would find out if this is real or not. Please, you have to help me. It's been a year and a half and if this isn't real, I would really like to move on with my life. I want to know why she is hacking me and stealing from me. I want to be able to get her help if she needs it. Maybe something like this is better suited for Maury. I know that you're a caring and generous person, Oprah, and if there is an honest person in show business, it's you. Please help me figure this out. Travis Reinking. It's clear he was at some point questioning if his delusions were real or not. Whether or not he actually knew what he was doing at the time of the shootings would ultimately be left up to the jury. At the end of roughly five hours of deliberation, that jury would find Travis Reinking guilty on all charges, including four counts of premeditated first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. His father, Jeffrey Reinking, is currently facing three lawsuits from the victim's families. 
He's also facing criminal charges for unlawful delivery of firearms to his son. Jeffrey was taken into custody but ultimately released on bond, and that case is currently pending. Following this horrific tragedy, James Shaw Jr. received much-deserved praise. It seemed just about everyone wanted to speak with the man who put an abrupt end to the violence that day. In the following press conference audio, with his right hand bandaged from the gun burn and all, he described his heroic efforts and how he wasted no time rushing the man that threatened his life, among many others. When he proceeded to come in, I actually went behind this like a push door, a swivel door, and it was at that time that I kind of made up my mind, because there's no way to lock that door, that if it was going to come down to it, he was going to have to work to kill me. So I figured if I was going to die, he was going to have to work for it. Shaw's courage is beyond admirable. Not many people would have done what this man did. You really get a sense of how humble and honest he is as reporters continue to ask more questions. They inquire about his four-year-old daughter and ask what was going through his mind at the time of the shooting. Did you think about your daughter in that moment? I didn't think about my daughter. Um, so when, it, on my Instagram and Facebook, everybody's calling me a hero, but I want people to know that I did that completely out of a selfish act. I was completely doing it just to save myself. Now, me doing that, I did save other people, but I don't want people to think that I was the Terminator or Superman or anybody like that. If I didn't put my life at risk, I probably, I'm probably not here. Like, I didn't, I didn't know that he had extra magazines in his coat pockets, but when I seen the barrel down, I, I mean, you can shoot at the ground all day, that does not, that's not going to really hurt anybody. So that was my opportunity, and I went for it. James would eventually go on to receive several awards for his actions that morning, including the U.S. Justice Department's Courage Award and the BET Humanitarian Award. He also appeared on The Steve Harvey Show and was given a free trip to Barbados. He also appeared on Good Morning America, The Ellen DeGeneres Show, and was even greeted by his favorite basketball player, Dwayne Wade. At the MTV Movie Awards in 2018, actor Chadwick Boseman accepted the gold-plated popcorn trophy for best superhero in the film Black Panther, which also happened to be the first black superhero character, first appearing in Marvel's Fantastic Four in 1966. It was an important honor, but Bozeman surprised everyone when he decided to hand the trophy off to a real-life hero sitting there in the audience, James Shaw Jr. Receiving an award for playing a superhero is amazing. But it's even greater to acknowledge the heroes that we have in real life. So I just want to acknowledge somebody that's here today, James Shaw Jr. Where are you stand? <laughs> you didn't even know we were about to do this, did you? If you don't know James Shaw Jr., he fought off a gunman in Antioch, Tennessee at a Waffle House. He saved lives. Come on up here. So this is going to live at your house. It's going to live at your house. Sadly, actor Chadwick Boseman tragically passed away in 2020 of colon cancer. He was just 43 years old. It's safe to assume that the trophy he handed off to James Shaw Jr. will be held dearly for many years to come. As if this man hadn't done enough for his community already, he took it upon himself to set up a GoFundMe campaign for the victims' families, raising a total of $241,731. Someone in turn decided to set one up for James. That campaign amassed a total of just over $225,000 at the time of releasing this episode. It's clear that James Shaw Jr.'s heart has always been in the right place. Many would say he was physically in the right place at the right time the morning of April 22, 2018 as well. Had he not been there, who knows how many more lives may have been tragically taken that day. It's apparent that James continues to use his voice for all the right reasons, such as spreading messages of mental health awareness 
as well as promoting charitable avenues like the one he's recently set up, the James Shaw Jr. Foundation. When disasters such as the 2018 Waffle House shooting occur, we're all left looking for answers. As a society, we inherently search for someone or something to blame or look for ways to prevent something like this from happening in the future. We also seek for the victims' families to find ways to heal. Controversies of gun control arise and how mental health should be monitored become major points of discussion. But we leave you instead with these words from Brennan McMurray, the man who was with James Shaw Jr. at the Waffle House and who immediately rendered aid to wounded patrons inside. A hero in his own right as well. His message seems to sum things up as concisely as they possibly can be after a horrific tragedy of this magnitude. I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't have guns, but if you have them, you should definitely be educated on what they can do and how to use them. And then also, if you don't have the mental capacity to do that, then maybe you don't need them. <laughs>